Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good evening. My name is uh, Dr. James Anderson. I'm currently the president of the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C. Uh, tonight, we're going to have a lecture uh, entitled National Readiness for Great Power Competition. And uh, thank you for joining this, uh, this virtual event. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Institute of World Politics, IWP, is a graduate school in national security, international, uh, international affairs, national security, and intelligence. Uh, we have a total of five uh, master's degrees. We have a doctoral program. We have 18 certificate programs. And we have two new online master's, master's programs. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu. Uh, tonight's event is the 24th, 24th annual Pearl Harbor lecture, uh, Pearl Harbor Day lecture. Uh, Pearl Harbor uh, actually occurred on, uh, of course, December 7th. Uh, but we are, uh, every year we commemorate uh, that event and uh, have an event that reminds uh, Americans of the importance of defense readiness. Uh, and preparedness. And uh, to help us tonight, I am uh, uh, delighted to introduce our uh, featured uh, guest speaker. Uh, general uh, Joe Votel is a retired uh, four-star general, United States Army, who had a uh, distinguished 39-year career uh, in the service of our country. Um, and he had uh, many, uh, many important assignments uh, serving at every level uh, of command, uh, both conventional military forces and also special operations forces, uh, including combat tours in uh, Panama, uh, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Uh, he was the uh, commanding general for US Special Operations Command uh, in 2014. And then from 2016 to 2019, he served as uh, the commander of United States Central Command. Uh, and in that capacity, he notably led a nearly 80-member coalition force that ended up crushing ISIS uh, and liberating uh, Iraq and Syria from that, uh, from, from that group. Uh, he has received many awards during the course of his illustrious career. And uh, in his retirement, he's been very active and remains engaged in national security affairs. Uh, he is currently serving as the president and CEO for the Business Executives of National Security, BENS, located here in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's also a non-resident fellow at the JFK School of Government in, uh, in Boston. Uh, and he also serves on a, several boards of directors and he is, is an advisor to the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Uh, General Votel is a 1980 graduate of West Point and he holds master's degrees from both the Command and Staff College and also the Army War College. And uh, General, it's a uh, absolute delight to have you on board tonight. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to you for any opening remarks that you may have. Uh, and then I have a, a series of questions that we can dialogue on. And then uh, later in the evening, we'll have some uh, questions from our attendees. So uh, General, over to you. 
Thanks, Jan Thanks, James. It's great to be with you, and I appreciate the uh, invitation to come and and uh, talk with your uh, talk with your uh, students and talk with uh, the members of uh, the IWP here. Um, I, I I appreciate I uh, really do appreciate opportunities like this, and so the when this was offered to me, I wanted to jump after it. I, you know, trying to trying to understand exactly what IWP does is not very hard. Um, the, the focus on on developing skills and in applying the instruments of statecraft, I think, is an extraordinarily important one for our country. And my my hats off to uh, to all of your students and your faculty for the work that you're doing. I, I can't think of a more important time when uh, when uh, developed skills in these areas is is could could be so so critical to uh, to the security of our of our nation. So I'm very very glad to be with you tonight. I'm, I'm, and I I also note the uh, the significance of the Pearl Harbor um, uh, anniversary here as we as we get uh, ready to uh, to do that in the next day or so. And uh, certainly I think that's a reminder of the importance of readiness, the importance of thinking ahead, the importance of being uh, prepared beforehand. Um, the Pearl Harbor, like 9-11, like some other events we've had in our past, certainly were strategic setbacks for us with which we had to uh, respond. And I think the idea is to minimize those. And, and certainly um, the work of IWP is is designed to do that. So uh, it's great to be with you tonight. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. And uh, with that, why don't we just jump right in and, and turn our attention to uh, some issues in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, and in particular, uh, some of the concerns that uh, we have about the uh, about China and China's rise and uh, what China is doing. And and, and on a variety of fronts. And um, this, is, of course, is something that um, um, has uh, occurred over a trajectory that has occurred over quite some time. Um, post 9-11, Americans were rightly and justifiably focused on counterterrorism uh, for a number of years. And we've had, uh, thanks to your leadership and the leadership of others, uh, had some success. And in, uh, in, in attacking those, uh, those terrorist groups that have an uh, extended reach. Uh, but kind of in that time frame, the, uh, China has, has uh, continued to develop its uh, capabilities on a, a lot of different fronts, um, as, as you know well. And uh, for starters, I just would uh, be interested in your opinion. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the Chinese capabilities, uh, of course, they extend beyond the military, but just starting with their kind of their military developments uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. What are what are some of the things that concern you the most, and that we should be we should be following? Yeah, thanks. I think it's a it's a great place to start, and certainly is uh, you know China certainly is a threat in the Indo-Pacific region, but uh, it, it's its reach is is much further than the Indo-Pacific region, as as many of you are aware. From from my perspective, as I think about the about the growth of PRC military capabilities, I, I think there's three things that concern me about it that I would just highlight for you. First and foremost is that uh, this growth is being uh, conducted under the auspices of a well-integrated long-term strategy. Um, 
uh, many of you have probably heard about this strategy of uh, military uh, civil fusion that attempts to fuse economic and social development with security strategies for for China that results in this integrated national uh, stra uh, strategic system that you know really is designed to rejuvenate uh, many of their capabilities and and move them to a place where they have not been uh, before and and uh, this has been something that has been underway for a long period of time. I, I visited uh, uh, China in 2006, and I can remember the discussions we had out at the Chinese War College about uh, some of the capabilities they were pursuing. And it didn't necessarily occur to me, it may have occurred to others here, that all, all, of, this, all of this work that they've been doing has been under the guise of a long-term strategy that started out through their five-year programs and now has uh, really uh, developed into a national strategy leading to uh, leading the 2049. So that's the, that's the first thing that concerns about this. They, they have a plan and they are executing and they're executing it well. Second thing I think that concerns me is that is the, is their advanced technology development through um, kind of uh, this advanced uh, defense science technology and industrial system that they've, that they've been able to, uh, to, to, uh, to put together. So there's been there has been a significant expansion of the Chinese uh, private sector, uh, in, particularly in their defense industrial base and their supply chains. And this has really benefited them in terms of developing capabilities much more faster at, at greater quantities uh, than, than they have had in the past. Um, to some extent, to some extent, China has benefited a little bit by uh, by the latecomer advantage to some of these uh, some of these technologies. They've watched what others have done, they've copied it, uh, and they've of course we're all aware of what they're doing with intellectual property and other things like that to take advantage of that. But they have benefited from from that particular approach. They have been very consistent in the spending in spending on defense items. While it doesn't necessarily rival ours, it's uh, it has been consistently in the 1.2 to 1.4 percentage of their GDP for years. Uh, and this level of consistency has served them uh, well. They're investing in emerging technologies that uh, are designed to increase the speed of warfare. Um, and uh, and, and have really focused in on this uh, this uh, this idea of intelligentized uh, uh, approach here, which which basically means that they are focused on emerging and disrupting disruptive technologies like AI, uh, and uh, this is this has really been an area in which they focused on. So we've seen specific focus in in as I mentioned in in artificial intelligence and advanced robotics, uh, semiconductor and advanced. Computing our areas where they are doing this, uh, quantum technologies, biotechnology. We've seen we've seen this hypersonics. Uh, and again, I think we're all tracking this, and this has come to a head with um, hypersonic. Uh, space weapons uh, that can be nuclearized and other directed energy weapons. And of course, the, some of the advanced materials and alternative energy uh, approaches that they are taking. So th the second the second concern is this 
is this focus on advanced technology and how they've been able to leverage uh, their whole, virtually their whole society in their private sector to do this. And the third concern, I think, is the sense of urgency. Um, you know, in, last year, the Chinese Communist Party announced a, a milestone for the, the People's Liberation Army modernization um, in by 2027 uh, that, you know, is broadly understand, understood as trying to get modernized um, into a, you know, into a system of uh, capabilities um, that uh, will frankly provide them more credible options for uh, Taiwan contingency or other things. So, you know, this is the third, this is the third piece. They are, they are not only have a plan, but they're pursuing technology, but they have a real sense of urgency in terms of doing it. And those three things, I, I think, uh, James, are what are really giving me concern about, uh, about the PRC military growth that we're seeing. Thanks for that and, and for pointing out kind of the comprehensive nature of what, uh, what the PRC is doing on the, uh, on the military front and, and certainly the civil military uh, fusion, which is uh, very important to how they, they do business. Um, I wanted you mentioned sort of in, in passing uh, uh, nuclear issues. I wanted to, to kind of pick that up a little bit. And, you know, for a long time, uh, uh, PRC has been a, you know, kind of a distant player on the nuclear scene. They, they first developed uh, an atomic capacity back in the, in the 1960s, um, you know, well after the United States and then the Soviet Union. Um, and then for, you know, several decades, they have kept a kind of, their nuclear number of nuclear weapons uh, at a, a fairly low level, um, but recently that seems that that is changing, um, and we have you know it's it's, it's public knowledge. Uh, the Pentagon has noted uh, what it sees as the intent of uh, Beijing to uh, at least double uh, the number of uh, nuclear warheads in the in the next few years, and then there are press reports recently about us you know. Finding additional missile fields in, in China, uh, which raised kind of further uh, further questions about Chinese intentions, um, and this is also you know against the backdrop of the United States and Russia sort of reducing its their nuclear forces in alignment with uh, existing treaties. So you have this circumstance where the PRC, which is not currently bound by any strategic arms control treaties, uh, increasing the number of forces um, and, and makes for you know, a potentially complicated world going forward. And would welcome your thoughts on that. And in particular, whether you think uh, these developments would possibly confer upon the, uh, the PRC any advantages in uh, future crises. Yeah, I think this is, uh, again, another area to have some uh, significant concerns about. And I think the suggestion and most of the reading I've done and, and other things that we've, that we've all heard about here is that there is some suggestion that China maybe is, is likely moving away from what has been referred to as kind of a minimum deterrent strategy with their nuclear capacity towards something that uh, would suggest another approach, uh, whether it's preemptive strike or uh, maybe an escalate to win strategy where they have, they, they, have a, they have a greater capacity. And so that plays a greater weight 
into uh, into uh, kind of the strategic angling that uh, that uh, that they're involved in. Um, so as you as you suggested, there's there's uh, accelerating large scale expansion of the nuclear forces and building a more diversified uh, arsenal. There are significant uh, uh, infrastructure investments in missile silos. Uh, somewhere on the order of about 800 is what uh, what I've what I've read here. Uh, they are building the the a DF-41 intercontinental ballistic missile that can carry six to ten warheads. Um, uh, obviously, that's a that's a that puts them into the realm of of uh, modern uh, modern nuclear technology. They are producing at a at a what I would describe as kind of a lower rate than we have seen with you know perhaps in the United States at the time when we were when we were producing these at a at a much greater rate. Uh, but they have been consistent in this and they are uh, aiming for about a thousand warheads by 2030 is what it appears. They have an aggressive testing and modernization program. Um, it's supported by uh, the ability to generate more nuclear fuel production for warheads and beyond a thousand, uh, frankly. And then of course is augmented with the capability of six, you know, uh, ballistic nuclear submarines um, that, uh, you know, certainly could hold the United States or others at risk here as part of this. So the, the impact here, I think, is that China may actually be developing a, you know, a true nuclear capability that could alter our options and opportunities during crisis periods. Um, I, I think it goes without saying that, uh, you know, the nuclear capabilities well established on the table uh, will change the nature of how we, how we look at things. And, and uh, with uh, with uh, China developing capabilities that uh, you know could potentially hold the United States uh, and its allies at risk, I think it I think it definitely can change the strategic equation as we as we look through the the resolution of you know emerging crisis situations in the region. Thank you, thank you for those insights. And you know, having covered uh, at least to some extent the kind of the nature of uh, PRC military developments, uh, ranging from, you know, the unconventional to the conventional to include the nuclear developments. Um, I wanted to sort of get your sense of what we should be doing uh, in response. As you know, most people are aware that we've been involved in the Pacific for, for decades. I mean, the United States is, uh, is a maritime power, is a Pacific power, we're also a European power. Um, and we've had uh, we've had troops de deployed uh, overseas at, at, at bases and in Okinawa, and mainland Japan, and Korea, and, and elsewhere. We have uh, treaty commitments uh, with South Korea, you know, with uh, with Japan, you know, with with the Philippines. Uh, we do a lot of things with Australia, uh, so we're already there, right? And we've been there for decades. Um, but what are some of the in, in that context, what are some of the kind of the military capabilities that you see as most important for us to develop uh, going forward? You know, with an eye towards strengthening deterrence, right? Because nobody wants uh, nobody wants a conflict. But you know, also if deterrence uh, should fail, then you know we want to have the right capabilities to to achieve our objectives. Um, so, your thoughts on that, please? 
Yeah, cer- certainly. So, you know, f- first and foremost, I think it's really important that to, to, before we talk about specific uh, capabilities and things like that, is that is to recognize that in the Pacific, like we have in Europe, we do need a we do need a Pacific deterrence initiative that's fully supported, fully funded, um, that you know helps us look at force design and posture that talks about exercises, experimentation, and innovation that you know addresses the lethality and capabilities of our forces, and then looks at how we strengthen uh, alliances and partnerships uh, throughout uh, throughout the region. So you know it, this isn't it isn't a function of just the services and SOCOM developing capabilities. It's making sure that those capabilities are really wrapped into a broader uh, Pacific defense uh, initiative that I think is, is really, really important. But getting to the, the capabilities, you know, uh, again, I, I think if you talk to any of the services, I know if you talk to the service from which I come from, the U.S. Army, they'll, uh, they'll lay out, you know, 30 plus four different initiatives that they are. So they, they, they have definitely thought through the, the capabilities that they that they need, and I suspect you'd probably get that from all of the all of the services. But from my perspective, to, you know, I, w- I would just share a few uh, broad areas of capabilities we ought to be thinking about. First of all, to our previous discussion, we ought to be looking at modernizing our nuclear capacity, and not just our own. Uh, our own missiles and, and warheads and stuff like that, but all the, the modern command and control and everything else that is needed uh, to to do that. Uh, second of all, I think it I think there has to be investments and focus on space and cyberspace uh, uh, capabilities. It is in these functional areas where we have to be able to dominate uh, in a in a in a potential conflict against China, and so we've got to look at making sure uh, this area is is addressed in our investments. Um, there has been a lot of work, a lot of discussion and a lot of work going on in the Department of Defense related to command control communications ISR. Uh, many of you have heard of the JAD C2 concept, the Joint All Domain Command and Control, designed to pull all the, all of our systems and capabilities together. This, I think, is extraordinarily important. Um, it, we are, I think, there is progress being made on this. Each of the services I know has different approaches that they're taking to this. I've, I've been most familiar with what the Army has been has been doing uh, in terms of this. Uh, uh, yeah, but this this command and control aspect and tying things together, include information uh, and all of our collection capabilities with our strike capabilities, I think is extraordinarily important in a in a conflict with China where things will probably move very very fast. Certainly, missile defense, uh, joint lethality. Um, and that's not just better weapon systems, uh, but it's also the you know better mobility systems uh, and better integration of those systems uh, as as we move forward is an important area. Um, advanced autonomous systems, and then of course resilient and agile logistics uh, are really are going to be really 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 important in a in a in a conflict in the in the in the Pacific uh, where we've got to be able to take care of our own. Uh, Forces at the same time as we've got to protect our own supply lines uh, back to the country here. So that is going to be particularly, uh, particularly important. Thank you for that, and uh, especially kind of the noting the you know the different capabilities and different strengths of, of services, and you know trying to, to kind of knit this together in a, in a larger concept. You know the, the joint force, so that the the sum of sum is greater than the the parts. Um, Maybe you could say uh, uh, expand a little bit on on long range fires, uh, perhaps from the 
the Army perspective, I mean, the the backdrop here is, uh, it seems to me, we've been, we, we have been playing uh, sort of catch up. And, and part of that has to do with, you know, a treaty we had in a different theater, right? We were a party to the uh, 1987 uh, INF Treaty with the then Soviet Union and that carried over to uh, the treaty we endured with, with Russia. Um, and then in the, in the context of the past uh, several years, it, it became uh, unfortunately very clear that the Russians were not abiding by that agreement. Um, and that, uh, long story short, ultimately led to the United States uh, uh, withdrawing from that treaty uh, uh, under the previous administration. Uh, and what that treaty did is, you know, we were party to it. We abided by that agreement. Um, but China was not a part of that agreement at all. Uh, so China was able to develop over uh, the last couple of decades uh, an increasing number of uh, theater uh, ballistic missiles, long range missiles. Uh, some of them that can range, they, have, they do have intercontinental ballistic missiles, but they they, they have a, a large number of regional missiles that uh, can touch some of our, our bases and those of our allies in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, so in that context, uh, there's, uh, there's been a, a fairly recent effort uh, by the services and in particular the United States Army to, uh, to develop their own capabilities. So if, if you could speak to that, I, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, thanks. No, that, that's it. That's exactly right. And this is, uh, you know, in many ways, as you suggest, China has has uh, has benefited from this developing nation status that they've had for a number of uh, years here um, to pursue a variety of these uh, capabilities. And of course, as you look at things like the first island chain, the second island chain, and how they've created this, uh, uh, tried to create this area of sanctuary around them. They've actually created a, uh, uh, an amount of strategic depth for themselves here, um, operating in the, in the, in the Indo-Pacific region. So uh, the importance for, uh, you know, for uh, you know, U.S. defense capabilities is the ability to actually strike in there and hold them, hold them at risk uh, in their, in their, in their, in their own area, and uh, this, of course, becomes the the focus of uh, of uh, kind of the joint long range fires. The army is, uh, you know, has, has had a, uh, a number of systems for for years that have uh, that have focused on this. Some of them not necessarily at the ranges that we need right now, but certainly uh, looking to increase that. Uh, the hypersonics, the ability to, to move quickly at this. The army has, uh, while I know all the services are doing something, and again, I'm a little partial to the army. I think the army has stepped. Out and taking the lead in in some of the hypersonic uh, capabilities uh, as we as we move through this, but again, this will be very very important. Um, and uh, the ability to uh, to deliver fires quickly uh, in areas where that really matter to the Chinese will be important in helping control escalation of of a potential conflict. Uh, it will be very very important to uh, to hold their capabilities at risk and. And to ensure that they absorb a level of punishment and uh, and uh, you know strike capacity here that uh, that 
provides opportunities uh, to, to potentially off-ramp uh, off uh, uh, conflict. So uh, these long-range fires, I think, are extraordinarily important. And of course, the challenge in the Pacific is great, uh, just because it's, first, it's so big. It's, second of all, it's a maritime environment. Uh, and so you've got to look at uh, islands. You've got to look at ships. You've got to look at a air, air, aerial platforms. Uh, you've got to look at a variety of things for how we deliver these types of, uh, types of capabilities. Yes, and thank you for mentioning the uh, the, the tier, or alluding to the tyranny of distance uh, in the Pacific. It's uh, it's really something that uh, is uh, you know going back to World War II is a tremendous consideration in, in prosecuting those campaigns and and as we think about uh, deterrence now and, and what we may have to do in the future, um, you know, time, space, distance calculations matter matter greatly. Um, in in the context of the, of the theater, maybe that's a uh, a good kind of segue into to, to pulsing your thoughts on some of our allies and our partners. I mean, uh, they're there. Uh, we, uh, in varying degrees, different countries, we have, uh, in some cases, mutual defense uh, agreements. In other cases, we have kind of partnership agreements uh, with countries that uh, generally align uh, with us. Um, they... Uh, they have, you know, their own sovereign interests, of course, and they, they freely uh, associate with us. Um, it would seem to me that uh, when we kind of step back and we we look about look at uh, kind of PRC advantages and uh, strengths that the United States has, one of the great strengths that we have is are precisely those allies and partners. Uh, they provide us uh, uh, depth. They provide us uh, access. Uh, they have forces that in some ways can be complementary and can be helpful in certain scenarios. Um, so maybe you could uh, share your thoughts on allies and partners and, and maybe maybe highlight the contributions of, uh, of a couple of the major ones and and uh, relatedly any thoughts on you know what what more they can and should be doing in this context. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad. I'm glad we're talking about this. I think this is an extraordinarily important area, and this is an area where, uh, in you know, in terms of strengthening alliances and partnerships, and our, this is this this is not strictly the domain of the military. This is. This is a place where you can bring all instruments of statecraft um, to to really bear here with uh, with this, and so it is 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 a critically important area. And uh, I, I guess the first thing I would just say is I mentioned up front the importance of kind of having like a Pacific uh, deterrence initiative, and it got one of the components of that where we tie everything together, our own capabilities and things that we do into a, into a you know cogent, coherent approach. Uh, but one of the one of the pillars of that, of course, is going to be strengthening alliances and partnerships. And when you think about the countries that we have to work with in this area, there's a, there's a lot of them. Um, and as you suggest, this is a uh, this is a game changing advantage for us to have a long list of partners who want to who share our interests and want to be aligned with the United States and and uh, and all of its partners as we as we address these types of threats here. But you know, certainly uh, Japan. Australia, the Republic of Korea; these are all 
really uh, top tier partners uh, in in the area. And then you've got the Philippines, New Zealand, New Zealand, kind of five eyes uh, country, again, top tier. Uh, and then you've got emerging countries like Vietnam uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, are, are, have the capacity to do more, particularly in their own particular, in their own uh, particular area. So we have to, we have to do more. You know, you might interest your um, uh, students and others on the, here to, the Vietnam, for example, is, sends an incredible amount of people to our schools um, here in the United States, military technical schools um, to, to, to learn tradecraft, to learn skills that they can take back. So this is, these are great investments that, uh, that we should be making. And uh, when you look at the amount of funding that we put into these types of programs, uh, you know, dollar for dollar, this is really some of the best investments we can make is getting our partners into into our schools and helping develop uh, leadership and develop uh, their own technical capabilities. So I, I think that's the you know kind of the first area that we need to uh, need to look at on this. But um, uh, you know, with respect to allies and partners, uh, you know. I, uh, they, they definitely play a role in helping with uh, deterring PRC aggression and, and helping with this. I think for, for us, I think uh, it's important to, to make sure that our, our partners are taking the threats uh, seriously. I think in the, in the examples of the countries that I just cited for you, I think they, they all are. It is important for all of them to look at their own internal uh, resilience here uh, in this particular area. And this, I think, has to be a first responsibility of all of our partners is that uh, they have to look after their own capabilities and their own protection uh, in, the, in their immediate areas and not rely on the United States or a broader coalition to come in and secure them. We want them to be in a position where they are securing themselves and also contributing to this. Um, so they have to take responsibility for their own internal uh, security issues. But also, I think it's important that, uh, that we, through our security cooperation programs, that uh, we encourage these uh, these partners to, um, you know, pursue sustainable and employable capabilities that they that they have. There is oftentimes, uh, uh, you know, uh, the eyes get bigger than the stomach here in terms of some of the capabilities that our partners want because they're because they are flashy, they're capable, they're uh, cutting edge, and that's really important. But I think what you learn over time is that while you want your partners to have the very, very best capabilities, what's really important is their ability to sustain, keep those things updated and and uh, and and in a in a in a you know in a fighting capacity as we move forward. So I you know I think an important thing that we have to we have to do from our standpoint and our partners do have is have to be very realistic about the capabilities they're bringing on board. And then their abilities to uh, uh, to support that. Certainly, some of these partners. I mean, we're all uh, tracking kind of the uh, uh, the the recent uh, you know sub agreements with Australia and other things like this. These are very uh, obviously very high end capabilities. So uh, you know, partners like Australia that got great depth that have great capability, have extraordinary reach, are already supporting us in other areas of the of the world. Really, really play uh, key roles. In this and we have to uh, we have to recognize their ability to bring people along and to play leadership roles in this as well and i think this is a you know a particularly important area for countries like uh, uh like um australia i'm glad you uh, i'm glad you mentioned security cooperation because that is just a, a tremendous kind of range of things that we do to help allies and partners i had a, a good fortune working the pentagon with 
with uh, General Hooper, who at, at that time led the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, and uh, and he did just a, a, such a tremendous job. I mean, security cooperation uh, does involve weapon sales, uh, but it also involves so much more. And as you alluded to, uh, you know, professional military education exchanges and uh, training ex and training and exercises and simulations with our partners and and uh, and also being very uh, very thoughtful about those weapons that we we do sell. I mean, as you suggested, you know, sometimes there is a desire from allies and partners to to get the flashiest items um, when those flashy items may not be uh, uh, the most appropriate for the circumstances. So maybe uh, in, in in that context, you could. Uh, you know, say a few words about uh, about Taiwan, and uh, which has been in the in the news uh, a lot and a lot recently, uh, with uh, the PRC, of course, having a long-standing claims believing that Taiwan is simply part of China and um, and not uh, not renouncing the potential for using force at some point to uh, to, to reunify, and um, and they have been doing a lot of things uh, to kind of politically coerce. Uh, Taiwan and the diplomatic space, and and also as well with uh, you know incursions into uh, to airspace and and, and uh, naval deployments and, and all the rest. And Taiwan is a small island compared to uh, compared to mainland Japan, and uh, it has a certain uh, certain geography to it. It's uh, it's about a hundred miles off of uh, off the coast. Uh, we've been encouraging Taiwan to strengthen its, its uh, defensive capabilities for years. The United States abides by its uh, the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, would welcome your thoughts on sort of going forward. What are what are some of the additional capabilities that we shouldn't be encouraging the Taiwanese to develop, and, and capabilities that we can can actually assist them with? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I note that there was there have been some recent reports of U.S. special operations forces on the ground doing some advising and assisting. So I certainly think things like that are are important. I was actually gratified to kind of kind of hear that. But I think overall, it's really important for the United States uh, just to continue to be a good partner and be faithful to our current policies and agreements, as you, you just cited several of them. And it's it's important to for us to publicly and and regularly communicate that. I know there's always discussions about whether we had to change our approach or change some of our strategies or policies. And certainly those are discussions that can take place. But in the meantime, it is important for us, I think, to continue to, uh, to be faithful to the, to the current policies and, and agreements we have in, have in place. I, I think it's also important, uh, and again, in the, in the, uh, in maybe in the, in the realm of tough love here and, uh, and having, having hard and courageous discussions with our, with the uh, Taiwanese it's it's also important, I think, to uh, put some pressure on them to take their own uh, their own security seriously. Um, uh, this I, I think goes without saying. We we have to they have to they have to care about this as certainly as much as we do, and, and hopefully more than than the United States does in terms of doing this. So I think you know in terms of some capabilities, uh, upgrading their air and defense air and missile defense uh, uh, systems, I think are they should should be a priority here. I think raising. Uh, the readiness of their reserve forces and all their 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 forces and creating 
uh, strong national will for uh, self-defense and resilience, I think, is really, really important. There are military tasks within that, and there are, uh, you know, I think leadership informational tasks within that as well. Uh, it's important that uh, this, you know, you can't put the, for a, a small island uh, like Taiwan, put the, put all of this on the backbone of their military. It's got to be the whole population has got to be into this. And so there does have to be a, a, an aspect of so-called national will there with uh, with them for their own defense. Um, I think we have to look at their own power projection capabilities within the island itself. As you cited, this is this is fairly it's it's an island hundred miles off the coast of of China, but it has its own complex uh, terrain as well. And so their ability to move forces around and and be uh, capable within their own confines, I think, is an important aspect of this as well. They have well rehearsed uh, plans. For for how they get forces to where they need to be and to get their capabilities in the areas where they can be most uh, most useful. And, and I think perhaps finally, and perhaps most importantly, is, is really, I think, to encourage uh, Taiwan to be very, very clear about their defense concept um, and to actually, you know, create some level of internal cohesion around this and, and, uh, and support to it. Um, Many of you who have studied this are, are, are aware of the discussion. You know, there are a couple different approaches here. Um, uh, the, the approach I think I, I, I would subscribe to and that I would think would be best for a, for a for an island like Taiwan is this idea of the kind of the porcupine strategy, the idea of making a bristling with capability and making it uh uh, so difficult for China to come in and do what they would need to do in trying to take over this um, is kind of the idea behind this. Um, you know, an alternative approach to a strategy, this would be one that, you know, focuses on sea control, that focuses on air security, that focuses on long range strike against Chinese forces. And while I think that could be enticing to some people, I, I think that fails to take advantage of the natural defense capabilities that an island, you know, with 100, uh, 100 miles of water in front of it has. Uh, and so this idea of, of a strong internal defense and, and really making it making it difficult uh, for China to, uh, to come in and take that over uh, using their military uh, capabilities, I, I, I think is, a, is, a, is perhaps a more appropriate strategy, at least from my standpoint, uh, this. But it, I think it's important that the Taiwanese have to agree to this, uh, and there has to be leadership in place that 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 does uh, understand the strategic concept and is you know is not only developing the capabilities for it, uh, but is also informing the population and the and their own leadership about this. So you know the 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 idea of a coherent. Uh, defense strategy for uh, for Taiwan, I think, is is as important as the capabilities, uh, having the capabilities to, to defend themselves um, uh, going forward. So, you know, I think there's certainly some things that they have to have. There's some things we have to do to help them, uh, sharing our own expertise, our own experience, and, and giving them the confidence that there's partners with them, uh, but also making sure that this is all done under the guise of a of a coherent defense strategy for for Taiwan. Thank you for that, for those insights and um, you know one of the one of the debates which has been percolating for a long time is 
you know, whether the United States should continue with a, a policy of kind of strategic ambiguity in the event of a, a PRC attack against uh, the island. Um, you know, as, as noted earlier, we, we are required by law, the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, to supply them with uh, defensive weapons and services. Um, but it's, it's kind of silent on the question of what, uh, what we would actually do in the event of a, of a conflict. You know, in, in a different theater, in, in the European theater, we have, we have NATO, uh, and NATO has an Article 5 security guarantee, right? The, uh, the three musketeers, all for one, one for all. Um, and that, that does say we are going to come and we are going to engage and defend our allies in the event of uh, aggression. Um, the question with respect uh, to Taiwan is whether uh, we're now at a point or maybe soon will be at a point where a sort of a clearer expression of U.S., what the U.S. would be willing to do in the event of a conflict would in fact be helpful for deterrent purposes. Now, there, there's, there's some who would argue kind of from a different point of view that, that maybe that would be unwise and maybe that would be provocative. Um, and maybe that would encourage the very thing that we want to prevent. Um, but I'm just curious about your uh, your opinion on this issue. Yeah, no, I, I've uh, I mean, in reading about all this, I'm, I'm certainly aware that there are a couple of there are some different approaches to this. And I think reasonable people can uh, agree or disagree on on kind of the the policy that the United States should be should be taking here. And, and I guess my my view on this is that, you know as a combatant commander operating clearly in other areas is that I I, th I think there's I think you know we 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 shouldn't shy away from looking at policy changes and looking at that. But I do think policy changes that we make, uh, particularly, you know, of the, this gravity right here ought to be very, very deliberate in terms of how we do it. So I think there has to be, there has to be a lot of consideration about how we, how we do this. And it shouldn't be a policy change we move into very, very quickly. To answer your question more directly, I think I, I, I think we, I think we should stay with our current policy uh, right now. My, my view is I think this um, is it, uh, uh, it supports, uh, maintaining kind of a peaceful status quo right now. And it keeps us communicating with China and Taiwan at the same time. And I think this is, uh, this is really important. I mean, my military experience is that I do, I do think you benefit from being able to talk to your competitors, being able to talk to your ad adversaries. Uh, and so I, I favor approaches that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, policy choices that actually um, support that kind of uh, approach. You know, ambiguity, strategic ambiguity isn't necessarily about whether we would intervene. I think it's the ambiguity about the conditions under which we would, we would do that. And I do think that that, uh, uh, that, 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 that does support our, our, uh, our deterrence approach here right now with this is that not, not, being publicly clear about what what we would do and under the conditions in which we would do it, I think it does give China the you know the opportunity for uh, for some pause in terms of this. Okay, the, uh, I want to ask you one more question and then turn to some of the questions that are beginning to to flow in from our attendees. So uh, the last question I have for you is is maybe you could say a few more words about uh, the role of SOF, Special Operation Forces, in the Indo-Pacific theater. I mean, we we uh, talked uh, earlier about kind of the tyranny of the distance um, and the use and employment of SOF forces is, 
is different than conventional forces and, and uh, often involves kind of a small number of forces that can pack a, a big punch. Um, but given your experience as a former uh, commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, um, how do you see sort of the United States position to use its soft forces and, and perhaps uh, cooperate with the soft forces of some of our allies and partners? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so you know, I, I, I definitely think soft certainly has a role to play here. Um, certainly, in the broad area of capacity building, um, you know, in the area of foreign internal defense, helping uh, optimize the capabilities and systems and processes that our partners have in place, so that they can they can they can defend themselves and they can contribute to a to a broader effort. I think is is really important. And soft forces. This is a this is a strength of soft forces in the area of uh, combat adding terrorism uh, is another area. Now, uh, uh, this, I think, uh, more of an indirect thing, I think this is uh, something that, uh, you know, helping in this particular area, I think, helps expose our capabilities and, our, and more importantly, our people to our partners out there and gives them something that uh, that is is useful useful to them uh, as well. I, you know, I've heard it, uh, you know, when you talk about great power competition, I've heard it said that, you know, the combating Terrorism is 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 a is a is a contributing aspect to uh, to great power competition. That you know, the, the helping helping our partners address this is a way to strengthen our own influence. Advising and assisting, as we talked about, are really important. You know, I I don't think it should be lost on the, on anybody that uh, the United States military, uh, all services, uh, all all ranks enlisted and and uh, an officer, and to include our most senior leaders, uh, have. Are, are, have the ability to draw on decades of combat experience, and that type of experience, that type of sharing with our partners, is is I think uh, very very helpful. And in particular, in the soft area, um, you know, uh, the soft community has led in things like targeting uh, and in employment of uh, surveillance capabilities and all the principles that come behind that. And these are areas where we can really help. Um, SOCOM has made extraordinary investments. In information operations over the uh, over a number of years now, and it is uh, and it is even since I left there in 2016, uh, it has moved uh, you know miles uh, beyond where it was, um, and is a very effective integrator uh, and orchestrator of information operations in there. And this is an area where they could uh, we could help as well. And I would tell you one final area where I think the soft good to help in particular is is that we shouldn't forget get about the kind of the historic role of soft as an economy of force to operate in other areas while we concentrate the you know conventional forces in in main areas like uh, the Indo-Pacific so you know the ability of soft you know because of their multiplying effect the ability to put small teams on the ground work with with larger groups of partners really provides uh, you know a unique economy of force capability for uh, the broader the Department of Defense capacity I would just add one final thing on this, uh, James, and this, you know, kind of goes into this area of the gray zone, uh, which I think is a is a really important aspect of how we approach China, and, and I do think we need an approach that highlights uh, how aggression by China uh, uh, in the Pacific could jeopardize their activities globally. Uh, when you look at China and uh, you know the Belt and Road Initiatives, this is all driven by their. Economic uh, 
their economic uh, objectives. Uh, and so being able through soft or other capabilities to hold them at risk in other areas, I think is, is, is got to be part of an effective strategy um, for checking their aggression in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific region as well. And I think we certainly have the capacity to do that in a sustainable way while we continue to to, you know, uh, position and, and uh, employ the majority of our forces in the Indo-Pacific. And that leads very nicely into one of our, our first questions from our attendees. Uh, you know, we've been talking uh, for uh, largely in the Indo-Pacific theater uh, so far. And, you know, I, I think most people would, would agree that the PRC definitely presents uh, challenges and a threat um, in, in that context. But, you mentioned the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, and and the question is really, uh, you know, the extent we should be concerned about China on a global scale uh, beyond just the Indo-Pacific region. Um, you know, things that they're doing and interests that they have in, in the Middle East and in Europe and even South America, uh, to what extent you, you are concerned about these uh, these activities? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, we would be making a significant uh, mistake if we didn't look at at uh, you know our competition or the threat of, of China on a, on a global um, aspect. I mean, just if you look at things like rare earth materials, for example, the investments they have made in places like uh, like Africa, and, and to some extent in in, in Afghanistan, where they're again another country that is rich with this, unfortunately not able to to, to take advantage of that. China's uh, focus on this long-term focus on trying to secure resources out here in in areas other than uh, other than the Indo-Pacific, I think, is an extraordinary uh, is an extraordinary aspect of their of their overall approach. Uh, and it is, and it, is, it is, I think, Exhibit A in terms of why we need to pay attention on a global scale to um, to what uh, to what uh, what China is doing. Uh, to answer your question or the uh, the, the the asker's uh, question more directly. Yeah, I, I am very concerned about Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, when you, you know, in the, in the area that I last operated in the CENTCOM area of responsibility, the uh, the China Pakistan Pakistan Economic Corridor CPAC that ran essentially bisected uh, Pakistan from north to south and uh, you know and dumped into the into the into the Red Sea and then was connected to ports that they were pursuing in, um, and not only in the Horn of Africa but actually in the, in the Arabian Gulf I think really poses a, a significant uh, significant challenge to us long term and could have some big impact in the in the time that I was uh, the CENTCOM commander from 2016 to 2019, we went from periodic presence of uh, Chinese naval vessels in the waters of the Middle East to persistent presence of Chinese vessels in the, in the, and, and with, for the single purpose of securing their own supplies, supply lines and, uh, and, uh, and the Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, Belt and Road effort. So I, I think this is uh, really, really, really important. And by the way, this is, these things are not helping our partners out there. Uh, there is, uh, numerous examples of buyer's remorse uh, with uh, with uh, China and the investments that they made in these countries and what that is, uh, the economic situation and the security uh, burden that that's in place on a lot of these, a uh, lot of, a lot of these countries that are, would naturally be aligned with us. Thank you. And the, uh, this actually, this discussion leads into the next question from one of our attendees is, 
taking this to kind of a global level. And the, the question has to do with uh, potential collusion uh, between the PRC and the Russian Federation. Um, you know, as we all know, there's uh, seems to be a brewing brewing crisis right now, and with the Ukraine and the Russian Federation, and um, and more broadly, you know, there's there's uh, discussion of you know exercises between the PRC and, and the Russian Federation military exercises. And I think legitimate debate about how you know how substantive and how extensive those exercises are, but nonetheless, some have. We know some have taken place over recent years, uh, but broadly speaking, uh, to what extent um, are you concerned about, you know, any sort of coordinated efforts between uh, Beijing and and Moscow? You know, given given the fact that they, you know, they do seem to be have come a sort of a common anti-West and common anti-U.S. perspective perspective, but uh, at the same time, it seemed to me that there's there's also some historical baggage between those two, uh, those powers. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah no, I, uh, certainly I think this is a, a reason for concern. I know, uh, you know, my former boss, Secretary Jim Mattis, used to talk about this uh, all the time, about the importance of making sure that we tried to prevent uh, a closer alignment between um, Russia and China. And I think if you look at both of those actors, they both have different uh, different strategic objectives. As we've kind of talked about, China is, is principally economically motivated uh, in terms of what they're trying to do and, you know, trying to create the, uh, you know, the, the great China here by 20, 2049. Uh, and they've got a very, a very solid plan to do that. It is really uh, dependent on making sure resources and, and then everything, uh, you know, all kind of comes back to comes back to China to continue to, to power their economic dream and and what they where they want to go. Russia's approach is, I think, a little, you know their their strategic objectives. I think are a little bit different, obviously, than that. Um, I think they are very keen to undermine us. They are can uh, they're keen to use capabilities like information warfare and cyber capabilities and other things to weaken NATO, weaken our alliances, weaken the position of the United States in areas where we are. Uh, where we are deployed. And so I think when you look at the, you know, any kind of coming together of both of these capabilities where both of these approaches, you know, as disparate as they are, could could conceivably come into a overall cooperative strategy before uh, against us. I think that is a that's that's got to be sending up uh, red star clusters for uh, for all of us. So I think it's it's something to be concerned about. Uh, both both countries have their own challenges. Certainly, Russia has some significant challenges economically and with a variety of other things. Here, they don't have many partners beyond uh, themselves. Uh, with this, and so that uh, works against them a little bit. Um, but uh, but I do think we have to be concerned about these two elements coming together, particularly going back to the nuclear thing we talked about. I mean, this could be uh, could be very very significant for us. Thank you, and uh, we're running out of uh, time. But we have a, a couple more minutes to try to squeeze in a couple of those uh, attendee questions and. You know, another one has to do with some of the other instruments of national power uh, that could be used in the competition with China. And uh, I, I know uh, you brought up earlier kind of, uh, you know, diplomatic power and, and working with State Department. Uh, we've talked about, uh, you know, collaborating and cooperating with allies and partners. Um, what are what are some of the uh, sort of other instruments of, of national power that, 
you think uh, can be helpful in terms of uh, uh, de deterring the PRC from you know, different forms of aggression? Yeah, I think we need to put much more effort into our informational uh, capabilities, our informational power, the power of ideas. You know, if you look back at the, during the Cold War, uh, we had a very well-developed uh, information capability uh, that, uh, you know, could respond uh, with great agility, with greater flexibility to the things that the Soviets were doing. And it allowed us to, you know, to be dominant in the information uh, realm. And I think that is, I think that this is really, really important. I know there's been efforts um, by the Department of State and others to, to you know, to reconstitute some of these things. I, and that's good. And I'm, I applaud those things. But I think we've got a ways to go in this. And we have to be dominant uh, with our information power. The power of ideas, uh, I think, have to have to be uh, persuasive. Um, out there. I, I would just share two other thoughts with you here, James. And, uh, um, you know, uh, um, I, I personally believe one of the most important things we could do is get our ambassadors in place, uh, in place, in play, in countries in the Indo-Pacific region, and really in in a variety of other places around the world. I think we have been hobbled with this, uh, and uh, and I know there are a variety of reasons for this. Some uh, going back to the administration, some to Congress, and and I'm sure there's probably some other things that I'm not aware of. But the fact of the matter is, if you're going to compete, the first task and competing is you've got to show up and we've got to get we've got to we've got to put our first team forward and I, and I say that and I don't want to cast any dispersions on charges or the excellent diplomatic corps officers uh, that we have out in our embassies globally they are they are extraordinary uh, Americans are doing you know yeoman's work on behalf of the nation but the fact of the matter is uh, we've got to get ambassadors out there. And I think it is one of the most important things we can do uh, to, to begin to change the, uh, you know, the, uh, the game out there and then make sure our Department of State has got all the, the back support that it requires uh, in the offices there. And then I would just I would maybe close this this one with this comment, and I, I say this really as the president and CEO of Business Executives for National Security. Is we need to look at ways that we uh, we leverage the the private sector in our strategic competition. I, I talk to business executives all the time across the country. They get what's at stake here, and uh, and we need to look at how we leverage our business capacity uh, to help with uh, with national security. This is not new to us. If you look at the Marshall Plan, the Marshall Plan was actually it wasn't wasn't led by the military or even by the Department of State. It was led by the business community. It was business leadership that went in and helped helped to address uh, you know help rebuild our former adversaries in Europe and out in the Pacific and in, in Japan. And so we've got to look at ways that we improve that. And that's this is a big focus area for us at Ben's here how we how we try to do that. But I think these are areas we have to pay attention to. Thank you for that, those insights. And I think it's especially important, and I agree with you completely about, you know, the need for integrating those different elements of national power. When we think about the PRC and its developments, it can be appear very menacing. But when we step back and we think about the strengths that we have had and how we have employed these different instruments of national power historically uh, and the number of allies and partners uh, and, you know, the confidence in our own ideas, uh, you know, we, we have some reasons to be optimistic here uh, going forward. Uh, General, thank you. And the, what, uh, what a wonderful treat uh, 
for IWP and our attendees to hear your thoughts and uh, for you to share your expertise uh, with us here tonight. Uh, it's been highly informative and, and uh, thank you sincerely for, uh, for devoting your time uh, this evening. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, all of those who uh, tuned in, uh, either via Facebook or, or Zoom. Um, and uh, if you're interested in attending additional uh, webinars, uh, please uh, please check out our website or perhaps supporting IWP or, or even applying to one of our, our many programs. Uh, we would invite you to visit our website at uh, iwp.edu. Um, with that, again, General, thank you. And uh, I wish everybody a, a pleasant evening. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be with you.